Lack of housing supply with continued growth of demand and population impact consumers and investors. Now, as investors, we have to get creative to achieve yield in these markets, and we owe it to our consumers to contribute to the affordable housing crisis. Learn how PadSplit has been doubling investor yield while helping communities house more of their workforce. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, managing partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors, welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I am sitting down with Frank Furman. Now, Frank is one of the founders of PadSplit. Now, PadSplit is the largest co-living marketplace in the United States, and we're going to learn a lot more about that this episode. Frank, we're excited to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate you having me, Justin. So tell us about PadSplit for listeners who maybe haven't researched it, haven't heard about it. What is PadSplit and what problem does it solve? Yeah, so our core business is we're a marketplace platform. Mm -hmm. So think like Airbnb, but fractional in terms of space, one room, one room, one room, instead of fractional in terms of time for short-term rentals, one occupancy, one occupancy. But again, that core business work with landlords on one side of the marketplace who list properties on our platform. And then we specifically focus on workforce housing, but they're going to our site, picking which room they want to book and kind of going through the process and making the payments through the site. But really, I mean, that's maybe a clinical way of describing what we do, but we're really all about being part of the solution for the affordable housing crisis. Oftentimes I get asked from people, they think about like, oh, you know, renting a room, maybe I'll ask my kids about it. They share like millennials or something like, no, 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 no. Ask your grandmother. This may seem strange to a lot of folks, but this is how people used to live. And in fact, the way that many of us lived at certain points in our lives as well. But, you know, if you go back to say the sixties or seventies, and even when I look at my life and perhaps you for yours, I mean, we're both in the Marine Corps, you know, I was in the Marine Corps for years, those heady days before I was married with three kids and so on. And we did shared housing. I've always lived in shared housing. I have six people in my house right now. It's not because I'm a sociopath. It's because I have a bunch of kids and, you know, (laughs) and all that stuff. Shared space is the norm, but for some reason we as a society have, develop this idea that everyone should have their own lease, everyone should have their own thing, and everyone should have their own place. And it's kind of strange for a single person to live alone. And it's very expensive. Structurally, it's very expensive because of regulation. So for example, here in Atlanta, where I'm based out of, if you want to build a new apartment, you need over 700 square feet and a parking spot. And that's a lot of space. I mean, concrete costs what it costs, and copper costs what it costs, and a parking spot probably costs 50 grand to do in the city. So any unit that's going to be built is going to be pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. So you can't build cheap. And then you're expecting someone who's just getting their start, who's single, who doesn't have kind of dual sources of income to cover that all on their own. Of course, we have a huge problem. So we're on the supply side. Our core conviction when we started the business was that there's a huge unmet need for affordable housing. That's not too controversial. The question was, how do you really ramp up supply to bring those costs down? And we looked at it as saying, how do you capture and monetize underutilized space in properties? 
what I'd like to kind of talk about today, which is sort of an exciting new offering from us is, again, our core business is that marketplace platform. Sure. But, you know, we're relatively limited on which markets we serve. We've launched a bunch in the last year. You know, we're in Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, New Orleans, Tampa, Jacksonville, Richmond, Indianapolis. But that's still a small percentage of the country that we cover. And we talk to investors all over who say, oh, you know, I really want to do this. How do I get involved? Or, oh, I want to do this, but I want to be a passive investor. I've got my own business. I've got my own job. How do I get involved? So we've actually rolled out a fund to allow investors to come in and invest directly in a portfolio of pad split properties, diversified across multiple geographies, obviously across hundreds of homes, so that they can enjoy the returns, both financial, significantly higher yield than traditional single family rentals. At a lower investment point, obviously, it's really hard to get in single family housing and multifamily because the price points are so wild. But then also the kind of social returns. Our view is about doing good and doing well and kind of do both at the same time. I like what you said. I mean, it's a supply side issue and that's what people are really feeling. If you're in this space and your social media is inundated with other investors and brokers and people who are looking to buy, you see a lot of controversy out there. You see a lot of people saying, well, how can these people come in and overpay this much? Hopefully the interest rates fix that problem and it'll kind of dampen demand. But that's not really quite the core issue. The core issue is, I mean, since the 60s, population has outpaced new deliveries by over two to one, and it's gotten way worse in the last 10 years for multitude of reasons. So we are definitely barreling down a highway that is not going to have a favorable outcome for the consumer on the other side, because we cannot catch up to housing. There's just no way to do it. We can throw all the money at the problem. Governments had their hand in housing before they failed flat on their face as they do with most things that the government puts their hands on. And so this is something that is so needed. So people are looking, okay, maybe it's higher rise apartments. Maybe it's mobile home parks where the densities are really low. And this is another really solid solution to this issue, because like you said, a lot of people don't have the ability to get even a one bedroom, one bath, or even a studio. Mm-hmm. There's regulations, there's other things, there's whole deposits that you have to put down, which is an obstacle in and of itself for a lot of these communities. I really like that. Now you talked about the fun. I do want to talk about the returns of it because as prices keep going up, as supply and demand keeps on continuing to shift in a way that makes prices, in my opinion, doesn't look like they're going to dampen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Investors are looking to get creative on ways to make these investments work. And one of those is shared space. Can you talk to us a little bit about the returns? So let's say instead of renting a three bedroom, two bath for $2,000, you're going to rent each bedroom individually. How does that break out? What do you typically see for returns versus renting as a whole home? As a general rule of thumb, when I'm working with an investor who wants to do this, we target doubling your unlevered yield. So if you're typically in traditional single family at say like a 4% unlevered, you know, buying in a four cap essentially, which is unfortunately where the world's at right now, we want to be around an eight. And the thinking is this is new. There's a steeper learning curve, obviously. So you want it to be really worth your time to kind of go down this path with us. It shouldn't be a little bit of a bump. It should be a significant bump. And so what that looks like on the asset side, and again, the asset type is very important. We're all about fit. For the right kind of asset, the right kind of investor, the right kind of resident, it works really well. And your yields can be significantly higher in a very predictable way. Mm -hmm. 
if any of those things are not the right fit, it doesn't work all that well. I think that's kind of an obvious thing, but it's important to know. So, I mean, in terms of the assets, you're generally looking at larger single family homes. We're also in apartments, but traditionally the bulk of our supplies in single family homes that are in transitioning neighborhoods. We're urban, suburban, exurbs, but we like to be close to transit or job centers. So you're not in your really high dollar neighborhoods because for those properties, the highest and best use is to sell them. We also don't like the worst neighborhoods, right? Because they're hard to manage and hard to operate. Can I get a plumber there on a Saturday night to fix a leak? Maybe not. So we like that kind of Goldilocks strategy of a kind of rule of thumb is a neighborhood that wouldn't have a big issue with renters, right? Maybe there's already a smattering of housing choice voucher renters and traditional renters and so on, but with a little bit of stability provided by owner occupants. That's kind of our kind of thought. So again, those houses, take that 3-2 that you mentioned. Okay, this is what your starting point is, is 3-2, but almost every house has what we would consider wasted space. So if you think about traditional rental, you're renting a house, And one of our initial insights was you get paid for the first bedroom, you make a little bit less for the second, make almost nothing for the third. And beyond that, no one pays you more for the incremental space. It's a liability. So it's extra cost to care for, to turn, you know, if you're going to paint the house in between tenants, it's extra space. So we looked at that specific kind of asset. So oftentimes, yeah, maybe it's a three, two, maybe it's a four, two, the kind of larger houses more bedrooms said, okay, fine. But for us, your revenue generating unit is the bedroom, not the house. So how do you maximize the number of bedrooms? And look, a lot of times that's custom work that may vary from house to house. So sometimes that may be finishing out a basement. It may be converting a living room or a dining room to a bedroom, but really getting to maximizing the amount of rentable spaces you can get to. Obviously all needs to meet code and safety standards and all that. And most houses have a lot of extra space. They're not really optimized around bedrooms. And we kind of think about it that way. So again, you take that three, two, now it's really a six, two. You might be renting those rooms for 700 bucks a month. There's a higher expense load, right? You're paying for the utilities because that's bundled in. You've got a property manager. Maybe you're doing it yourself. You should account for that. There's a fee for pad split. That's super important, right? I got all those kids. got to pay that. But <laughs> The simple thing is if you're making 2000 a traditional rental and still paying a property manager and paying some R&M and you're getting 4200 top line as a pad split with some expenses, it's pretty clear to see how you can really juice that yield or that asset. And again, not every asset and not every investor and certainly not every resident. That's important too, but that's how it works really. So you had mentioned kind of brushed over some of the communities that maybe they have a big pool of existing renters, or maybe they have some vouchers or some assisted living. Have you brought this to counties or cities and said, hey, this is a solution for an affordable housing crisis. Will you support this with housing vouchers? We're renting by the room instead of by the whole home. And what's kind of the response been if you have? So we have, and it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. As you know, everything in real estate is hyper-local. So two years ago, I met with the previous secretary of HUD about co-living and out of that engagement, HUD promulgated guidance to all of the public housing authorities in the country to say, co-living is legal with housing vouchers. You're allowed to use HUD funds for it. It's recommended. Here are some guidelines about how you should think of it. And they actually went so far as to say that if local zoning 
prohibits shared housing, it may be in violation of federal fair housing laws. Now, I will say in general, while many communities are very accepting and supportive, we haven't had an incredible response from public housing authorities who administer those funds at the local level. It's a little bit different. There's some operational challenges. We've had really good engagement from a few public housing authorities. So while it's not our focus or kind of private pay, it's on the roadmap to sort of fix, at least in select geographies. Like you mentioned, it's such a need that something that we need to start getting creative to fix this problem. Yep. How many investors have been doing this and what's their success been like? What's the good, the bad, and the ugly? I think you've brushed on some of them in the past, but what are some of the unique risks that something like this might have? Yeah, the unique risks aren't that dissimilar from anything in the real estate business. You're viewing it through a slightly different lens. So there's always the risk that you buy the wrong asset. And same thing applies for us. The unique risks are really around the operating model. Now, we've implemented a lot of technology and processes and procedures, communication systems between folks. How do we think about de-escalating situations that may occur? It can always happen. There's no way around the fact that people are complicated, cut from the crooked timber that is humanity, and sometimes they fall short. So you can have a problem tenant in a house, and that can make the whole kind of situation suboptimal. But Mm. the risks are that, look, eviction is rare, but sometimes it has to happen. That's true for us as it is in any sort of a rental situation. doesn't mean it isn't painful to do it every time, but there's always the question around what are your neighbors going to think? And the way to think about it is, again, also true for anything in real estate. The residents in the house are not perfect. Sometimes they park in front of someone's mailbox, don't take all the trash to the curb or whatever, you know, the same thing that every tenant might do. And neighbors complain. And if a neighbor complains, what do they do? They call code enforcement because that's what people do. And then you get tickets and you get pressure from municipalities sometimes. Hey, we want you to clean up your act and, you know, we want to give you fines because we don't want you doing this here. And that's a broader issue. It kind of gets back a little bit to the question around affordable housing in that Everyone wants affordable housing in the abstract, and oftentimes people don't want it in their neighborhood. So we deal with that, and that's a challenge. And some municipalities are more tolerant of different operating models, and some really don't understand and don't like it. That's a risk that, again, you can mitigate and you can plan for, but is kind of ever-present. It's tough for investors to take on new strategies as well. Now I got to look at a property through the lens of how many bedrooms can I make with this? How do I advertise this beyond having the one website? How do I do all of these things? And I think the fun that you mentioned before in the beginning solves a lot of that because that sounds like a passive opportunity, correct? Yeah. Is the fund open? Is it pre-open? Or tell us a little bit more, I guess, about that. So fund one is closed and fund two is open. So we actually are back on the fundraising trail for it. So yeah, it's open to accredited investors and we're raising money now. We actually just initiated our first capital call. So we're really excited about that. And when fund two is closed, I'm sure we'll roll into fund three. It's currently buying in five geographies. We're buying in Tampa, Jacksonville, Atlanta, Houston, DFW. And your point's spot on. I mean, we're not perfect in predicting which asset's going to work perfectly and which neighbor is going to be perfect and all those things. So you diversify the risk across geographies, across submarkets within those to get an outstanding net return. We're in kind of the low 20s is what we're projecting. So we're really excited about it. It makes it a lot easier for people who are in geographies that we don't serve or are 
strictly passive investors who they want to write the check and they want to get checks back. And that's great, but don't want to handle a call about a leaky sink. When you are underwriting these deals and you are taking out loans, how do banks view this? Are they accepting of you saying, hey, I'm going to split the sub rent by room. This will be the income. Or are they underwriting it as just one property? How do they do that? Great question. So it's typically being treated like a traditional single family rental from an appraisal standpoint. So if you're a lender, if anything were to go wrong, you'd be taking it back and selling it as a traditional single family rental. So they don't care what the income is. They care, hey, you bought it for 200. The ARV is 200. Okay. I'm valuing it at 200. That's fine. I think reasonable. There are lenders who have struggled with it. They have the heart of underwriters and Sometimes it's outside their box. We have a number of great lenders who we've worked with and our customers have worked with who are very comfortable. And what they love is the debt service coverage ratio is outstanding. As much as, yeah, interest rates are ticking up, but it's still a good time to be borrowing money. There's still a ton of lenders out there who are pushing for your business. So yeah, people don't have any trouble putting in long-term debt on these properties. Sometimes it's tough to get underwriters to be creative. That's for sure. (laughs) That is for sure. At least there's lots of them, I guess. So Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been great. I think it solves a big problem on the consumer side. It solves a big problem on the investor side. And best of all, there's passive opportunities out there for it because yeah, it does sound like a lot of legwork. It does sound like a lot of different learning curve. So how can people get a hold of you? Maybe learn more about the fund, learn more about you, what you're doing, make some better decisions that way. How can people get a hold of you and who should get in touch? Yeah. Easiest way is just shoot me an email, frank at padsplit.com. I'm easy to find. I'm the only Frank Furman on LinkedIn. You can kind of grab me, but yeah, just shoot me an email. would love to have kind of a chat and yeah, introduce you to the company and our fund and the whole bit. Perfect. So listeners, we're going to put those resources in the show notes. And of course, while you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free book, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive cash flow to Multifamily Real Estate. Frank, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jess. Appreciate it. 